Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks for tuning in here for this episode, the first of 2022. Happy New Year. We have a great conversation in store for you today. I'm speaking with a brilliant trio of experts on Bill de Blasio's legacy, the city he has handed off to Eric Adams, and where Eric Adams appears to be taking it. Today, I'm joined by Sally Goldenberg, City Hall Bureau Chief for Politico New York, Dr. Christina Greer, political science professor at Fordham University, and Harry Siegel, a senior editor at The Daily Beast and columnist at The Daily News. And Christina and Harry are co-hosts of the FAQ NYC podcast, which you should also listen to. And both Sally and I have, of course, had the privilege of joining as guests. So check out FAQ NYC as well for all your podcast needs here with Max Politics uh, in addition. Uh, our conversation in just a moment. Uh, first, a quick reminder to visit us at GothamGazette.com. You can find all our latest reporting, uh, our guest opinion section, and much more. We have all the episodes of Max Politics posted there as well. You can also find them at your favorite podcast channels. Uh, we have had recent coverage of Bill de Blasio's legacy, the transition to Eric Adams's mayoralty, a lot happening with the race to be the next city council speaker, which by the time you listen to this uh, will likely have been officially voted in for Adrian Adams and much more. There's a lot happening at the state level as well, of course, with Governor Kathy Hochul now entering uh, her first state of the state address budget season. The state session is underway and the election year of 2022 for state and federal offices. There's a lot going on and we'll be covering a lot of it at Gotham Gazette, of course, and here on the podcast. On the podcast, we rounded out 2021 with some great episodes. So if you missed any of those, check them out after this one. I spoke towards the end of last year with Con Congressman Jamal Bowman, uh, outgoing Department of Social Services Commissioner Stephen Banks. I uh, had conversations on CUNY, the future of housing policy and bus policy, and much more. So find Max Politics wherever you get your podcast or the Gotham Gazette website. Okay, Sally, Christina, Harry, thanks for being here. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. So let's start on Bill de Blasio. Uh, let's each give a little brief uh, thought on what his legacy will be. Um, there's obviously thousands and thousands of words that some of us have said or written on his legacy in recent weeks. Uh, but in brief, uh, how is he going to be remembered, Christina? What's... Um, you know, what's the sort of top lines that stand out to you and you think Bill de Blasio will be remembered for after eight years of being mayor of New York City? Uh, in a positive light, I really hope it's universal pre-K and 3K. I mean, the millions of families that were that were assisted by that policy, the number of cities who adopted that policy because of New York and uh, our scale, uh, being able to accomplish it, the number of parents I've talked to who just really needed that relief. Uh, for, you know, it's what, when you're thinking about babysitters and things in daycare, it's, you know, it could be forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 easily. Uh, and so that's, I don't know if we'll ever really know the economic benefits of that program, allowing so many families to stay in New York because of it. Hmm. A little negative would be, uh, and I've said this to you before, uh, possibly de Blasio being disinterested in being mayor for a significant portion of his tenure. It seems as though he liked to be everywhere but New York City. Sally, what do you think? I think I agree on pre-K. I think he will also be remembered for handling COVID. Um, you know, that was probably the biggest event, external event of his mayoralty. Um, and I think he will, ha I think history will probably look kindly on his policies for, you know, lower income people um, and working class people. But I think that legacy, you know, which is pretty good, will be kind of always overshadowed by the constant um, political, personal problems he ran into, whether it was fighting with the council or sort of backing off some of his promises on criminal justice or w whatever it was. You know, there's there's that could be a whole separate podcast. But, you know, I think that the political missteps along the way will kind of 
always get in the way of him, of his policy legacy. But I agree with um, Dr. Greer that UPK is, UPK and his handling of COVID are probably, you know, in his fight for higher wages across the board for lower wage workers will, you know, is a significant part of his legacy. Yeah, it's been very interesting um, how all along, and there's something to this, you know, they've tried to sort of take credit for what wound up being the statewide increase in the minimum wage and the paid family leave policy. And, and there was very much something to that, that the, that the mayor kind of pushed the governor and was part of what, you know, pushed the state to do those things. But, uh, you know, I don't know how much uh, in the history books, you know, he'll get that much credit for it, even if he deserves some. Uh, but Harry, jump in here. So I think he'll be remembered as uh, the first Democratic mayor in a long time basically in all of our adult lifetimes to hand power to another Democrat mm. and the first and even longer to do so voluntarily. You know, a Koch, Koch gives the city to Dinkins, but Dinkins has defeated Koch in the primary. So I think a lot of his legacy is going to come down to how Eric Adams does with the, uh, with the hand he's been dealt. Uh, spending has gone up really dramatically on a Bill de Blasio's watch. We have federal money that's helping to paper that over for now. We don't know how long that lasts. Uh, Sally was mentioning de Blasio was, was haunted by by a lot of troubles of his own making, including legal troubles that never fully closed in on him. Right. And, and it was a real question. Was he going to get to a second term? And as soon as the feds and local prosecutors announced he did shady stuff, that they weren't going to prosecute. He, he cruised. Uh, that was somewhat accidental. There was a big Supreme Court decision that, that really opened the, the gate for uh, public officials to take money. Even if the people who gave that money could end up going to prison, as happened with de Blasio, he got there a little accidentally. I think Eric Adams now has a roadmap for how to be rule following, you know, uh, uh, on the right side of the law, but also to aggressively deal with donors. And so I'm, I'm very interested to see how that dynamic plays out. But finally, there, there was an attempt early on, um, I, I think. Phil Walczak, who was working for the mayor at the time, was, was involved in this to, to sort of show all the money de Blasio had transferred to poor New Yorkers. Uh, Juan Gonzalez centered his book around this, which is a terrific book. But this argument at the center of it, that, that he's given all these tens of billions of dollars to poor New Yorkers basically came down to to labor deals. And the rest of the money was almost a rounding error. And those labor deals, they were waiting for him. Um, the same way getting control of the schools was waiting for Bloomberg because Giuliani spent years bashing them. Right. Uh, there were all these deals. The next mayor was going to have to strike them. And then then that was the money. And if you take that away, you know, you're looking at de Blasio as a sort of competent in a lot of ways, sort of centrist mayor, uh, mushily on, on the left on a lot of things, who was aiming for continuity and seemed to mostly get there uh, until until COVID really reshuffled the deck. I think did his best on that. But afterward is, is leaving a, a, a weakened city with, with big fiscal issues, some real crime questions and other things for Adams. And de Blasio's legacy will depend a lot on how we look back on, on the last eight years after the next four. If this was the start of a, of a downturn and a reversal after a, a period of, of, of progress and an overcorrection, uh, or, or, or if de Blasio is part of, of a continuity in which we have a government that does more for people who have less uh, without without throwing the, the, the broader balance of the city entirely off. So I'm, I'm very eager to see. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think there's a way really to talk about Bill de Blasio's legacy without some of these ethical questions and sort of running, you know, city government as a political operation at the same time, uh, obviously doing favors for donors, not getting charged with crimes, but being you know, admonished by prosecutors for, you know, breaking the spirit of, of the law, if not the letter, um, you know, obviously uh, just handling so much through a political lens, trying to influence the 2016 presidential election and falling on his face, trying to run for president in 2020 and falling on his face. I mean, you know, to me, these are not just sort of ethical questions and, um, you know, sort of sad political stories. This is also gets at what I think is one of the biggest themes, which is this that he he wasted so much time and opportunity and to just be mayor of New York City. And, and yes, it can be frustrating as mayor to not have control over everything you want to have control over, Albany, Washington, et cetera. 
But this gets back to your point, Christina, that this sort of like seeming disinterest in just the powers of the mayoralty and, and being being mayor. And, you know, there's some people who probably and I've heard from them, you know, on Twitter when I've said some of this is, you know, they're probably happy that he didn't <laughs> try to do more and move the city in a more progressive direction. But he just in just in terms of taking on the major challenges and crises that he had in front of him, NYCHA, homelessness, um, other issues that are not necessarily all about an ideological lens. He just wasn't being mayor. Uh, is that, is that fair? Uh, Christina, Sally, is that, you know, is that, um, you know, the wasted time and opportunity, it just seems like every, almost everything he could have accomplished seems to me like he could have done in one term and not two. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of agree with that. I think it comes down to there's a cognitive dissonance in him between who he is and who he thinks he is. So he Mm -hmm. sort of ran and thinks he's a progressive movement leader. Um, And on some issues related to wages and, you know, shifting wealth, he is. And he's shown his chops through pre-K. You're right. He advocated for minimum wage. He didn't do it himself. There were a lot of things he did that didn't get a ton of coverage. You know, the fair work week legislation. There was there was a fair amount that he did as mayor that was in his control or that he advocated for that kind of fits into the ideology. He's comfortable there. He pushed the state on tax increases. You know, that's sort of how he views being a progressive. But the movement contains a lot of other facets and has shifted. Um, he's generally generationally out of step with it. He's kind of culturally out of step with it. He's, you know, nearing 60 years old. He's worried about his sort of moderate flank, if you will. He's afraid of the co- losing the cops is the phrase I heard his aide Patrick Gaspard said to him once, you know, don't or many times don't lose the cops. And that led to him really disappointing the progressive movement on criminal justice. Um, and I think that frustrates him because I think he sees himself as the real deal, like a Bernie Sanders type who doesn't just pontificate on the Senate floor, but puts that into action as an executive of the hardest gov- you know, city to govern in America. And what he fails to see is that when it when things got hard, he didn't take courageous action. You know, he didn't do anything on school integration and he didn't do anything. I used this in my legacy story. It's kind of stupid, but I think it's so emblematic. You know, he wanted to deal with this Confederate statue issue because he saw it was a national issue about race. And that's very important to him. But then he got scared because the sort of like Republicans on Staten Island were like, oh, no, don't touch the Columbus statue. And he does worry about them, even though they never voted for him and never will, I assume. And so, you know, it was a commission and then a commissioner got fired over it because they didn't give a statue to Mother Cabrini and his wife was involved. And then and then Cuomo, you know, usurped him and it was all really dumb. But like the point is that when other than wage issues, I think when things got hard, he I I don't necessarily think he made bad decisions for the city on some things. he did. I mean, homelessness is just objectively a really big problem. NYCHA wasn't always handled well, Um, but I think he doesn't he's not comfortable with the fact that he's not like a progressive leader. And that conflict led to inaction and led to, you know, what I always thought was that he seemed very afraid and very isolated, mm-hmm. but also very arrogant and strident in how he presents himself. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And defensive. And, and like, and, and, you know, we're not, a lot of the stuff we're saying has been bandied about for years. Right. But, you know, a, a really kind of a legislator in an executive role. Right. Yes. And, and the idea of someone who didn't really want to just like take command and, and mayor. Um, yes. You know, Ben, I, I mean, I gotta say, I co-sign everything that Sally has said and, you know, with the statues, it's funny because, you know, I think he looked at sort of Mitch Landrieu and was like, Oh, well yes. he can do it in new Orleans and I can do it in New York city. And it's like, <laughs> no, you can't. Right. Mitch Landrieu actually knows how to govern and, and, yes. and he gets it. I am going to sort of put a little bit, of this on us as the voters, largely because, you know, I, I break up de Blasio into four quarters. There's first term, first half, first term, second half, you know, second term, first half, second term, third half, or last half. And, um, you know, the first half, I think he got in there and he hit the ground running. And, you know, we hadn't had a Democratic Democratic mayor in 20 years. I think a lot of people were excited. I think that explains the African-American solidarity that he enjoyed. Um, sometimes he enjoyed it and he didn't deserve it. Um, but that, 
that second half of the first term when, you know, he's dealing with the lawyers and it's like, is Emma Wolf going to go to prison? And like all this stuff that's going down. No one ran against him. And I understand that, you know, there's Democratic solidarity, but like, why didn't someone step up? Why didn't someone say like, this guy seems like he's distracted. He just he has this one big signature policy. But like, besides that, like, what else you got? Like, I feel like if we as voters maybe put a little more pressure on him to do the work and not be so defensive. And and, um, there was like an inertia that sort of happened uh, after the first half of his first term. I mean, he didn't even have a primary challenger. And I just felt like, you know, with our obviously decreased participation. Sal Albanese is going to hear this and you're going to hear from him. So we should. Yeah, exactly. And Sal Albanese tried to come for me before and he needs to slow it all the way down. Okay, (laughs) like said something about like me having a car living like in like the rich part of New York. I was like, dude, you don't know me. Keep my name out your mouth, Sal Albanese. But no, he didn't have a real primary challenger. And so a substantive one, someone who is who's legitimate and significant, realistically, you know, someone from the council or someone, you know, in in leadership. Ruben Diaz Jr. Yeah, like, you know, flirting with it, but couldn't pull the trigger, but couldn't pull the trigger. So it's like fortune favors the bold. And so when he cruises into a second term, he doesn't have a mandate. We haven't demanded anything. And then he's like, all right, well, kids, I'll see you in a bit. I'm going to Iowa and New Hampshire. (laughs) And then he just bounces. So I totally agree with Sally and, and COVID. And, you know, obviously in the shadow of all this is Cuomo just constantly batting him around like a cat and a mouse. However, I think we should have done a little bit more uh, in 2016 and 2017 to demand a mandate from Bill de Blasio for that second term. Because the second term, honestly, if COVID hadn't happened, he would be napping and at the Park Slope Y for four years on my dime. Yeah, until until he saw the next race coming in. Exactly. That's the other, um, you know, the the. The thing you mentioned about the second term, I think, is also kind of emblematic of he's just very restless. Like he said to I think it was Harry once or the 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 um, edit board of the Daily News, like I'm not here to fill potholes. And, you know, he has, and like that's OK if you allow your commissioners to do the job and innovate. You know, Bloomberg wasn't here to do a lot of things, frankly, but he allowed his commissioners to innovate and, you know, I think de Blasio wanted to govern through a very specific lens of income inequality, and that halted a number of things that maybe were just kind of the nuts and bolts of governance, or they happened, but nobody knows. He didn't really amplify it. And I think, um, to Chrissy's point about the second term, I think that restlessness led him to where his heart is, which is like a national, he wants to fight with national Republicans. He doesn't want to fight with the left. You know, Eric Adams wants to fight with the left. De Blasio thinks he's part of the left. And as I say, I think he's uncomfortable with their disapproval of him. He wants to fight with real Republicans. That's where he's comfortable. And there just aren't enough of them in New York. So he kept looking elsewhere to like make his point. People will really understand me if I can fight with, you know, I don't know, some governor from some red state about whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, but that's not the job of mayor. There's like two Republicans in New York. And what you're really doing is fighting with more powerful Democrats, whether it's Andrew Cuomo or just an organized left or, you know, activists who got their together on criminal justice reform, whatever it is. Or community boards. Very uncomfortable. Or community (laughs) boards. Go in and convince community boards to build some housing or whatever it is. Well, someone said to me in my legacy piece, everything with him was the smallest of small politics. And, you know, obviously I can't see who the person is because they were on background, but it was someone who worked in that space in the like housing, economic development, rezoning building space who felt like, why aren't we just saying this is progressive in their view? Why aren't we saying as an administration, this is progressive policy? Instead, we're cowering because a community board or a council member is mad at us. And that's where I think you're right, Ben. I think when he started, people thought he'll never stop being a public advocate, but really he never stopped in some ways being a councilman. I don't want to be unfair. He was the mayor, but like, you know, his his sort of approach to politics was very much like a legislator. Can I just insert something really, really quickly? Because when we circle back, when we start talking about Eric Adams, I want to circle back to this point, Sally, because I feel like Eric Adams is stuck being a cop and is not going to shift his his mindset of being mayor. Harry's got a lot to say. I'm going to just quickly say also, though, on that front, it's amazing that. 
quote unquote, moderate conservative Eric Adams is coming into office saying he will do that very thing, which is go into wealthier areas and say, no, we're upzoning your neighborhood. Now, let's see if he does it. But doing some of these sort of progressive things that Bill de Blasio didn't do. uh, Go ahead, Harry. Or, Or didn't get to until the very end. Uh, uh, he, 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 in his last half, he, he was sort of racing to check things off and while looking to run for governor. I just wanted to say, going back for a second to, to the South Albany's, look, fortune favors the bold, but New York City favors Democratic incumbents. And this stops people from growing once they're in office, from being a political strategist and a council member to being a full mayor. We're going to see with Adams if it stops him from being a cop to being a full mayor. And I can promise that when de Blasio runs in 2013 for a second term, that if we had nonpartisan elections where the top two people run off, that uh, Diaz or Stringer or somebody else of substance uh, would have would have run because there's a broader electorate to appeal to and there's some path to victory. And because we don't have that system, we're never going to get there. And the sad thing is the people who are pushing for the system, Sal Albany's, Andrew Yang, are, 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 are exactly the wrong avatars for it. But we have something where where everyone who is presently in office benefits from this lousy system that cuts most voters off and and uh, um, and, and the people the, the farther left people like uh, you know the DSA types love it because if there's a fixed universe and you can get 3,000 more people in this congressional district to vote you have tremendous political power and the regulars love it because until their voters die and tend to be older uh, they've, they've got a built-in base and a significant head start in these really tiny races so so fundamentally I think we have a, a broken system that is not encouraging political competition. And that's been an issue for a long time. And this got hidden because we had 20 years of non-democratic mayors for, for a series of very specific and circumstantial reasons uh, that stopped the Democratic Party here from having to reform itself at all. And to me, getting to some 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 form where we have competitive general elections, which, you know, is literally the least we should have in a democracy uh, would, would would really dramatically change New York politics. I think uh, I think for the better. But anyways, that's that's my uh, cause at the moment. That, that is I mean, listen, again politically a, not going a, anywhere. We had a pretty great Democratic primary for voters, right? We had mm-hmm. an amazingly sort of diverse and pretty impressive slate of candidates, all with their flaws, all with their strengths, et cetera. But you had a top, you know, six, seven, eight. Uh, obviously, there were eight that made the debates, um, but, you know, that that offered voters a lot. The problem, again, as you say, is, you know, the sort of closed primary system and and the lack of interest somehow, even among Democratic voters, um, you know, is a real challenge. And then you get this nothing uh, general election with people disengaged. Um, but. I, I I don't agree that Scott Stringer or Diaz Jr. or or an office holder who had their own second term, you know, to run for would have would have run against De Blasio even in an open system. But uh, we can we can debate that another time. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, there, yeah. there would have been much more of an incentive for for for, yeah. for somebody to run there, and we had higher turnout in this general election, which was remarkably low turnout. than in that uh, competitive, interesting and really dynamic primary. And that's a shame. And it points to how many New Yorkers really just have no say in who is running and governing the city very likely for the next eight years. And I simply don't think that's healthy. So so we've gotten at some of this, um, but let's just dig in a little bit more on sort of some of the things that Bill de Blasio may or may not be remembered for. Uh, Obviously, having this devastating global pandemic and New York City is the epicenter for the second half of his second term will be a huge part of how he's written about in history, how he handled it, sometimes very poorly, sometimes fairly impressively. Um, you know, we need some more perspective eventually probably to judge that more. Um, he wasn't the only one who misjudged it early on, obviously, but he, you know, really seemed to, to, to fumble as it was coming into the city. Um, but then, you know, had some stronger moments later on related to schools and vaccines, we think. Um, definitely, definitely vaccines, but we'll see what the school record winds up looking like. Um, but but before the pandemic or, or even including the pandemic period, but not directly about the pandemic, are there things that we haven't mentioned that, you know, he should be remembered for? To me, I think 
the fact that he was the mayor that put, you know, closing Rikers Island and the building of new jails in motion, it, assuming that that winds up actually happening, you know, it all comes to fruition under Mayor Adams or maybe even a successor to Mayor Adams, depending on how many terms he gets. Um, you know, I think that's sort of in the top lines of how his his history will be written, that, you know, there was pre-K, obviously. We talked about that. I think closing Rikers, depending on what happens there, is sort of in the initial sentences of his political biography. I'm not sure what else goes, though. Um, you know, he he's getting a lot of plaudits on climate moves, and maybe ultimately those will be those will be in there. I think mandatory inclusionary housing, while, you know, something that the public, you know, still mostly, you know, hasn't sunk its teeth into, I don't think because it's kind of a wonky zoning issue is pretty important long term. There's some other things. But Sally, what else do you think goes in the top lines? I just want to make a a couple quick points. One, I forgot to mention earlier, his legacy will also be shaped by this likely governor's race that he has strongly hinted he's entering into. And it's, it's, you know, it's a long shot. And I think how he comports himself and how he does will affect his legacy um, politically. I, I kind of, I think what you're saying, what you're getting at is that there's not a lot of like physical there's not a lot of visible physical change to the city. You know, Bloomberg did big projects, Hudson Yards, Cornell Tech, whatever. De Blasio really didn't do a lot of like big economic development projects. I would strongly doubt that people attribute the building they're living in to a mayor. So like mandatory inclusionary housing, which was a piece of his overall affordable housing plan, isn't something that's different than, I mean, he did that policy differently than other mayors, but there's a city system that exists in perpetuity to finance affordable housing. It it happened before de Blasio, during, and it will happen after. And maybe he's up 30,000 units from Bloomberg, but I highly doubt that that's something people will remember him for because it just kind of goes on, you know. Um, I think perhaps the ferry system, you know, he caught some flack for it, but he did expand the five-borough ferry system. And he did... uh, I'm not sure about Rikers. I mean, I, I have, I'm highly skeptical that even gets done. Eric Adams doesn't seem as interested in it. It's hard. It's expensive. Um, I, I do kind of agree that there's not like a lot of physical stuff, so to speak. But, you know, I think the ferry quite possibly is something that he gets remembered for. Um, I think the... The, this is not a physical thing, but I think his relationship with the NYPD, I mean, we all remember the back turning. We all remember the cops who were, you know, executed in December of 2014 or assassinated um, Eric Garner, Pantaleo. You know, that that whole saga, I think, is something that is attached to him. Um, and then I think, I mean, this is not something that got a ton of attention. And I guess this speaks to de Blasio's disdain for the media and not really amplifying his own achievements in the media. But he did take um, off the Brooklyn Bridge. He took bikes off mm-hmm. the Brooklyn Bridge, right? And that, that's like a physical thing that anyone who goes over the Brooklyn Bridge will notice. And like people in the transit world are very, you know, hyper aware of. I don't know if he never really owned it sort of in a, in a branding capacity, yeah, he didn't even, you know, he he didn't even go to the ribbon cutting for the the new yeah. the bike lane on the on the Brooklyn Bridge, which you know right. is again emblematic of, of things. I do I do agree on the ferries, even though there's some real questions about the subsidies involved and the financing and all that. It's a major sort of physical legacy, transit legacy, even if it's you know uh, further cemented sort of his inattention to the subways and buses. Um, it, it, it's significant. And even the busways, you know, if, if those continue to be expanded, you know, getting the first busways in, um, you know, to try to improve some bus bus speeds. But again, we're getting into sort of, I think, the, you know, sort of secondary tertiary level here. Uh, yeah, we're looking, we're looking for things. They don't but, jump out. Yeah. Well, can, let me throw something out. Is you know, because he would always say, DePaulo would always say, this is the safest big city in the world. We're looking for tangible things, right? And this is sort of goes back to Cuomo and, you know, sort of avenging his father's legacy because his dad didn't have sort of like big things. Um, but realistically, I mean, when COVID hit and unemployment was rampant and like, you know, people were still scrambling to try and get money from the federal government, like we were relatively a, a safe city. I mean, you know, you hear about 
stories from the 80s, obviously the 70s, when New York was just like the OK Corral. And I think the way people say in Long Island talk about New York is actually not the reality of New York. I mean, New York actually was pretty safe under de Blasio. And even when the NYPD did their slowdown, I was like, hey, NYPD, don't try and prove your own point. Like, we actually don't need all of you. Like, when you guys slow down, we're still safe. Right. So when we have police officers who were, you know, out because of COVID in the very beginning, it's like we were still good. Now, I don't know if that's directly Bill de Blasio's leadership necessarily, but there's something about his tenure where we did not devolve into this lawless Mad Max nation that many Republicans said we would in 2013 if we elected Bill de Blasio. I think my question for you all as journalists who obviously have looked at Bill de Blasio way more uh, intimately than I have is, you know, I always think about when Ibrahim Abdul-Mateen came on FAQ NYC and we talked about water and how uh, Bloomberg put together all these protections and safety measures to protect our watershed and our water. And it's like the super unsexy, but incredibly important behind the scenes, big municipal project, you know, all these testing stations that we see nowadays, you know, if you're looking around, you see all these like water stations to make sure if anything ever goes down on the terrorism front, we're protected with water. Did Bill de Blasio do any of those like behind the curtain, nobody really knows, nobody really cares until it's time to care. Did he do any of those projects where it's like, wow, in years to come, we're going to be like, this guy was like really forward thinking. And we're so glad that he invested all this money into a project that like none of us even really talk about at all. Like, I don't know how many people know what, what, um, Bloomberg did with, you know, sort of the free water testing kits, which let Harry, I hope you filled out because that was your homework for 2021. You know, like things like that. And I don't know. You guys would know better than I. I mean, he did. You know, there are a couple things that come to mind. His administration really overhauled commercial waste zones and how garbage is collected. You know, the sanitation department only collects residential trash, not commercial trash. And the the business of collecting commercial trash was kind of fraught with safety concerns. Um, They weren't recycling it. There were corruption concerns. And at the urging of his sanitation commissioner, Catherine Garcia, who, you know, actually came very close to becoming mayor herself in 2021, they completely overhauled that through city council legislation. Um, And that's not sexy, but that's that was a big thing for that industry and for how trash is collected. He didn't go far enough on on recycling rates. They're still really low. But that was a big thing that I think kind of fits into what you're talking about. And another thing that I think people know, but maybe doesn't get a ton of attention is he provided counsel for free counsel at the city's expense for people facing evictions, coupled with a rent guidelines board freeze. And, you know, it's a quote unquote independent board, but it's his board. And it was at his urging, I believe, that they did two years of a rent freeze if you're in a stabilized apartment. Those are some things that are, you know, pretty significant for the people they affect. Um, You know, they're not they're not front of mind. He's again, like he didn't really utilize the media to make things front of mind. I think he sort of thought the media is out to get him. We want to talk about how he goes to the Park Slope. Why? Unfortunately for him, that will be remembered because it was <laughs> sort of silly and and symbolic, even though he did a lot of other things, you know, and his commissioners were always banging their heads against the wall. Like, why are we paying attention to what gym he goes to when they're doing this hard work. But, you know, that's optics, whether he likes it or not. But I think those are two things. I I do think the commercial waste zone overhaul is really important for that industry and for for the safety of the workers and for a lot of other things that, you know, the kind of tentacles of that, that, you know, probably people won't immediately think of, but it was definitely significant, as were the city-funded attorneys. Harry, jump in in a second, but you know my my initial thought when you were asking that question is like not really on the physical infrastructure, but there are pieces of the social infrastructure, and I was going to mention the right to counsel that are are seemingly going to be around now forever. He very bizarrely dragged his feet on fair fares, but that's now there for low, you know, low income transit riders to get half price Metro cards. That's a huge, you know, anti-poverty measure uh, that the right to counsel, um, you know, investments in community schools where there's a lot of resources at the schools, you know, he put a ton of money into that. Now we have to see how well that really works out for student achievement and such. And that really should have been 
married with uh, other school efforts like, you know, more efforts to desegregate the schools, which, you know, was just a totally fumbled uh, topic for him uh, as a a so-called progressive um, to try to figure out a way to, you know, integrate the schools better as a school improvement strategy instead of some of the things he tried that that failed. But, you know, I think it's the it is the social infrastructure, whether it's the right to counsel or fair fares. Harry, you wrote about I'm just, I'm remembering you wrote that there basically would be two things that Blasio would be remembered for pre-K and um, this drop this until the pandemic, this drop in crime at the same time as a major drop in arrests. Right. I mean, it, do you still see that as as a as a important way he'll be remembered, or did the pandemic rise in gun violence scramble everything? I think it depends a lot on what happens now with Adams as mayor and what happens nationally, since this rise hasn't been at all limited to New York, and we're pretty much plateaued this year with gun and violent crimes, but way up from 2019. Uh, other places are still ticking up, so 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 we're we're going to see on that. Look, a lot of the things we're talking about, Fairfares and Rikers, I think, are, are obvious examples, like de Blasio was dragged into. So these are things that happened on his watch, and he didn't finally stop, uh, but 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 was in no way the driving force on. And as Sally was saying, we'll see if this Rikers plan ends up happening at all. Um, in terms of physical infrastructure, there's really nothing. And I've actually thought a lot about in 2015, when de Blasio revived the century-old idea for, for a new Utica Avenue subway line, which would have been a huge boon to, uh, to, to, to the outer boroughs, to Brooklyn, very good outer borough. Um, and, and, and this, this landed with a slash and then, you know, the rock disappeared and was under the water and there were, there were weird pseudo follow-ups and studies, but nothing ever happened. De Blasio does not control the trans system, but he put this bold idea out there and let it disappear with policing. It's very complicated only in that the drop and stop and frisk for the most part actually happens under Bloomberg. And de Blasio is a big part of the political pressure that finally forces that to happen and deserves real credit for that. After that drop happens and with less police stops, crime continues to go down on his watch, which is a real and impressive accomplishment and something a lot of people didn't think was going to happen. And not just the, the, the full New York Post sky is falling crowd. You know, the, the Daily News editorial board was apoplectic about this. Uh, and, and he deserves real credit there, in part because of his great fear of the NYPD. Um, and th- that's been a tremendously autonomous agency. It's going to be very interesting or department to see how that dynamic plays out with Eric Adams, you know, a former police officer as mayor. Um, he, he never got the credit there, but partly it was he kept insisting on this, this weird three card Monty shell game where he was taking credit for the thing that was actually done before he got there. And there's a whole court part of this you guys know about. I won't go deep into the weeds, but let me just say. That this was not a settled matter. The city had a a real and serious appeal of the the, the judge's reasoning that, that was like very likely to be heard in advance, and he shut that down and then made it a settled matter uh, in this really interesting way. R- Ray Kelly writes about this, who I'm not a fan of, but there's a a good writer, like thoughtfully and very intelligently, in his book Vigilance, um, and and it's interesting and almost totally forgotten history. Um, so 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 he, he takes credit for the thing that's already done when he comes to office and then all the good that happens while he's in office, in part because of his political fear of the NYPD after Gardner and after after officers Lou and Ramos are shot at the end of 2014. So after those three deaths, he, he's never able to express what it is he's done. He, he starts hiding behind a series of, of complicated buzzwords and talk about community policing that nobody really understands what it means or how this is different. And consequently, the, the good that happened on his watch, it, he, he, he never found the language to express that, uh, to, to clarify what had happened and why he deserved credit, which I truly think he, he did. Yeah, I mean, and again, like on some of these other things we've mentioned, it's like part of this theme where and he even admit, you know, he's admitted and his allies have admitted that, you know, he was not great at communicating uh, throughout, which, again, is, you know, this confounding thing for someone who knows politics so well, obviously, and and watched the Dinkins years so closely and, and everything since. Um, just quickly, and we, we need to move into Eric Adams a little bit, but um, I was looking back at this recently and at the press conference Bill de Blasio had to announce that they were dropping that appeal mm-hmm. on stop and frisk, one of the people that he very um, uh, sort of assertively shouted out was Eric Adams for 
his advocacy against the overuse and abuse of stop and frisk, uh, which ties into, you know, this campaign that we just all uh, covered uh, and, and some of the issues that came up there and some of the questions about what kind of mayor Eric Adams would be, especially on this issue. Uh, just quit real quick. You're listening to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm joined by Dr. Christina Greer, Harry Siegel and Sally Goldenberg. Thank you all for taking the time again. Um, so. Are there things as we as we move to a little bit of conversation on Eric Adams and the city that he's inherited and what he might do with it? Um, are there things about being mayor of New York City that the de Blasio years sort of reinforced or taught us, you know, that are really important things for Eric Adams to be thinking about, for us to be thinking about as we cover, watch, analyze Eric Adams, um, you know, I think there's a whole bunch of lessons and Eric Adams seems to have either already known them or learned them from the de Blasio years, but any sort of big picture things that seem to stand out um, for this new mayor from, you know, having watched the last one. Yeah. I'm going to start with, um, you know, obviously being mayor of New York city is a huge deal. So it makes sense that Eric Adams is on, you know, the Colbert show and he's been doing all the national television programs this week, but he can't fall into that trap of going on Morning Joe a few times a week and not going and speaking to the Room 9 folks. Um, he's still in his honeymoon phase, but I think, you know, a little yellow flag that I'll be looking out for is, you know, how Eric Adams deals with problems when he's not in the honeymoon phase. Um, the level of defensiveness that we saw in de Blasio, we can feel is palpable in Eric Adams. I mean, it's just under the surface. It's not enough prayer beads in the world to get that to go away. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, mayors are just, you know, one bad snowstorm away from folks turning on you um, and, and how you handle it. Remember when we had that blizzard and Bloomberg was like, I'm in Bermuda. I'm sorry, kids, you're on your own. And we're like, we didn't even know you left. Right. Um, and so if Eric Adams, whatever sort of big flare up happens, whether it's kids and COVID and outbreaks or whether it's, you know, a, um, a hurricane or a fire tornado. I mean, it's 2022, anything could happen. How he handles that and how the press sort of holds him to account um, can really shift us, I think, in a new direction with uh, Eric Adams and either how he views himself as a mayor and not just a cop, like you can't go, you know, shooting folks um, or, you know, his communication style. I mean, you know, before we started, Sally uh, said something, you know, he's he's deliberate and he he understands and he knows what he's saying. Um, and so will he try to get on the side of the press in ways that de Blasio was just wholly disinterested in? You know, will he try and sort of recognize like, hey, I'm a little loose lipped, but you guys know what I mean. You know, he, he puts on this charm for those of you who've spent time with him. Uh, it's awkward, but it's still this uh, charm offensive um, that you can tell very quickly can turn into a aggressive defensive. Um, but he starts with the charm offensive and we'll see how long that lasts and how long the press sort of give him a grace period um, as he sort of gets his sea legs together. Yeah. He's uh. sh showing up in a way that de Blasio wasn't all around. He's on the trains and he's biking places. And th that to me is a, a significant and good course correction. It's useful symbolically. I also think that, quite honestly, it, it's just very helpful for, for, for a mayor to get that sort of uh, unsolicited information and feedback and, and, and be willing to take the chances of weird stuff happening, like a fight breaking out under you while you're on the uh, Jay-Z elevated line, calling the police, calling 911, and then the police showing up and not really doing anything. And being bold enough to do that right away, I think, is going to buy him a, a fair amount of, uh, of, of of grace and space. I also think something he's learned from de Blasio is he is going to be emphatic about following the rules. I's will be dotted. T's will be crossed. There will be belts and suspenders. Uh, what that means in terms of the uh, the the the. the, the 
fundamental honesty of his administration and, and its interest in public service, I, I think, is 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 an open question. Uh, and I don't mean that harshly or, or to be suggested. Um, I, I just mean that the, the rules we have allow for a fair amount of favor trading. Any intelligent politician who people are eager to give money to now and have access to is going to think about that. And where de Blasio almost accidentally got through, you know, the Supreme Court changes the rules on his watch. They come very close. I think Adams is coming in thoughtfully uh, and aware of some of the press he's received to date. Like, 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 no, we're going to do this right. And this is also a very police cop thing. You know, like whatever happened, like the paperwork is going to be there. We'll see if I'm right about that. But I, 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 my gut is that that is a lesson he's, he's learned. Hold and we'll take Harry, can, I, can I ask you a follow up question, though? How is that possible when it seems as though. Eric Adams sort of lies in a way that like Trump and Cuomo sort of lie, where it's just like these like little white lies kind of just roll off the tongue. It, it almost seems like he doesn't even notice it. And I'm from the the family where it's like, if you lie, you cheat. If you cheat, you steal. If you steal, you lie. They're all the same thing. So these little white lies to me feel like they can snowball over time into you know, something much greater. And you've written about, you know, also surrounding yourself with people who aren't necessarily into I dotting and T crossing. And so it might not be you, but are you like guilty by association? Those are the two questions here. There's the rule following and there's the penchant for speaking loosely that Mm -hmm. I think is something I understand from a borough president. I understand from a mayoral candidate to a certain extent. I think he's actually going to have to think about as mayor. And, you know, I don't think all of his slips or slips are accidental, but I do think that you have to tighten up the uh, the language you're using and to say things exactly and, and clearly because you, you, your, your words have a impact and scope and, and consequences in a way that maybe they, they, they hadn't previously. So as of now, uh, you know, he, he Adams distanced himself from Ron Terosian, who's the PR guy who he, he was hanging out at Zero Bond with. Terosian is actually who the Zero Bond member was, who there were lots and lots of questions about. And has all these interesting ties to Trump, by the way, just speaking of Queens folks. Um, he uh, has not appointed uh, uh, Phil Banks, who there have been questions about, that have been written about in different places um, from when he was in the NYPD and the Blasio administration, his deputy mayor for public safety. So, so maybe he's distancing himself from some of these characters. But as we're recording this, they just put out, you know, the, the, the senior leadership group uh, that starts with uh, Frank Caron, who, who, who Sally and others have written a, a good deal about and is very intimately tied to the Brooklyn machine and has all of these sort of questionable and interesting Connections. So, so the two big questions are one, um, if Adams personally is going to have uh, restraint and rule following uh, w- w- with a politically aggressive crew that hasn't always. Um, and two, if, if that's going to extend to his broader administration and universe or if potentially we end up in an interesting Koch third term sort of dynamic where it's not the mayor, but it's all the people around the mayor. Who you end up with with, with interesting and, and difficult uh, questions about uh, some of which, by the way, we also had in Rudy's second term. Before Sally jumps in on, you know, any other thoughts on sort of Bill de Blasio lessons for Eric Adams or any other mayor? You know, I mean, I I think it would be great if the mayoralty sort of scared Eric Adams a little bit straight, uh, changed him a bit. If he understands, as he says he does, the sort of responsibility on his shoulders I've sort of been much more pessimistic of late, whether it's around Eric Adams or anybody else, that just, again, even the weight of the office, you know, doesn't really change people. I mean, we saw the messes that Bill de Blasio got into, and maybe that's enough of a wake-up call for Eric Adams. But Eric Adams, including during the campaign, including things, uh, some of which reported on by Sally and Politico around his residency issues, his tax filings, all of these things. Now, maybe you're mayor of New York City, so you have access now to more resources and more people to keep you on the straight and narrow to give you advice. You know, he brought in, um, you know, a council uh, to the mayor that seems like a smart move. Uh, He's talking about a lot of the right things on these issues, but at uh, 60 plus years old, you know, do people really change even when they become mayor of New York City? I don't know. He's had enough brushes with really questionable decisions, not filing the right paperwork or trying to fudge things that, I don't think he gets benefit of the doubt at this point. He's got to he's got to prove that he's really going to do things on the straight and narrow and he's going to be uh, ethical, transparent, et cetera. And this talk around Philip Banks that he was never 
convicted of a crime, so therefore it's okay, sounds exactly like how Bill de Blasio justified everything that he did that was clearly not okay. Uh, so, you know, I think there's some real flags there that hopefully I'll be, you know, proven wrong that Eric Adams does things, you know, perfectly ethically, et cetera, but I don't think he gets the benefit of the doubt coming in. Yeah. Um, Whatever you want to hit on, Sally. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm going to reserve, you know, I'm a reporter, so I've got to reserve judgment on on the new mayor. I've covered him. He doesn't, you know, people keep saying the press is giving him a honeymoon. And I, I just want to be clear, the New York Post is giving him a honeymoon and they have a tremendous amount of power. But at Politico, we've been pretty aggressively, you know, covering him for 14 months. And, uh, you know, the good and the bad, I like to think we're, you know, objective and he does some really good things and he does some questionable things. But I kind of feel like I've been already covering him for like 15 months. So it doesn't feel so so new to me. Um, uh, I think I, I would boil down the question about what lessons can he or does he seem to be learning or how is he going to be different from de Blasio into two things, like two buckets. One is the public persona. And, you know, like he's just he's got it in spades. You know, he's he's comfortable in his own skin. He's like loose. He's he's charming. He's everything in a personable way that de Blasio was not. And it shows. Um, and that is to his benefit. And I think will always be to his benefit. He's also uh, he can be peevish and he can be thin skinned, just like de Blasio, but he can turn it really quickly. Um, and he can he he understands the sort of performance of the job, the optics of the job. And there's a substantive quality to it, as Harry said. If you're riding city bike and you're riding the subway, it's not. I mean, of course, it's it's for press and cameras, but it does also give you a sense of. New York that, you know, de Blasio getting sort of shipped around the city and a city funded vehicle and this kind of imperiousness about him didn't give him. So I think that, you know, I think Mayor Adams is handling that so far really well. And, you know, we'll see if he keeps it up, Um, you know, and so that's kind of TBD, but so far so good on his, you know, as he's concerned. Um, The other part of the job or the other part of, I should say, the other part of what I think he's doing really differently from de Blasio is just opening warfare with the left. I mean, de Blasio had this tortured relationship with the left. He wanted to appeal to them and whatever. We've, we've already spent a lot of time on de Blasio and the left. Eric Adams feels like he didn't win with them. They were either with, they were probably with Maya Wiley, whom he really seems to personally not like, and she seems to personally not like him. And I think he is comfortable having this fight because I think he, and I don't want to speak for him, but I've heard him say some version of this enough times. Like I've lived this life, but, you know, I grew up poor. I'm black. I was beaten by cops. You don't actually know, you know, 24 year old white person in the Democratic Socialist of America of Queens. You don't know what it's like. So don't tell me what it means to be a progressive. He feels that really strongly and he wants that fight. And whether that works for him or not, I mean, I don't know. It's really like we'll see. Right. He I think the the positive side is, as we saw in the election, most Democrats more Democrats agree with him than uh, the farther left candidates. The negative side is that, you know, if he goes too far, he can get branded as like not a real Democrat. He was a Republican at one point. You know, is he more comfortable among Republicans? Is he going to bring back solitary confinement? He said yes. Then he said no. Then he said we misquoted him. And this is what I think uh, Chrissy and Harry kind of got into, too, is the precision is important when you're a mayor. You can be a candidate and just say stuff. And we get the gist and we're covering you as like a figure. When you're the mayor, it's like, no, no, are you bringing back solitary confinement? You can't just keep saying we misquoted you, we have tape. And I don't know the answer. I'm using that, that was a recent example. I mean, he's only been mayor for four days. So these are all recent examples. But I think that the political danger there is maybe going too far to the right where the bulk of Democrats who did elect him and don't really care for the DSA and the far left get concerned. That hasn't happened yet, but that's something like I'm certainly watching for. And then just in terms of how he speaks, I think, yes, precision becomes more important. He's a very gifted orator and he's very uh, sort of accessible and relatable when he talks and that will take him really far. But if he starts saying we're making things up, 
when he doesn't like the story and the backlash to something he said that, I mean, that's not going to work. Well, there's a real Trumpian Cuomo quality about him. And I think I'm going to have to do with him what I did with Obama it's like, for opposite reasons, where it's like Obama had this like great flowery language. And I'd read, you know, I'd print out his transcripts and follow along during his speeches because I, or, you know, read the transcript afterwards. And I was like, wait a minute, I disagree with what you said. I think with Adams, I'm really going to have to look at the transcripts of what he's saying, because in one speech, he will say, you know, I keep going back to his June 22nd acceptance speech, you know, election night when he's like, Black Lives Matter, pivot, Black on Black crime. And it's like, wait, you are like the most progressive and conservative Black man in one speech, in two sentences, back to back. And so I think people can hear what they want to hear in his speeches. Um, and then you throw in a, a kind of a loose lip statement that, you know, becomes the headline and you kind of miss some of the substantive uh, elements of what he's saying because... He's he's saying a lot in very short periods of short spans of of time. He's also very good at uh, just one really quick thought I had on that. He's very good at not vilifying the sort of institutional permanent government, if you will, the chatter and Mm -hmm. whatever phrase you want to use for them. People who tend to have money who tend to be white, who tend to live in Manhattan, the people that Bill de Blasio really wanted to have a fight with and kind of just like lost that fight because, you know. uh, Consistently. Yeah, just like not enough New Yorkers feel that strongly about like developers, I don't know, whatever it is. You know, Eric Adams like, likes those people or, or at least wants to bring them into the tent, so to speak. And so I think that's a different, you know, there's not a class warfare fight he's having. He's like, I'm here to help the working class, but I'm totally fine with the rich people who live here and pay taxes. I think some of this gets at like the essence of Eric Adams mayoralty, which is he seems to think that other than the fringes on both sides, really, that he can sort of thread the needle and make almost everyone else kind of happy because he, one of the best skills he has that, you know, was born out in his victory was that he sort of gets where like most New Yorkers are. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you win a democratic primary where like the left can really activate and win, but he, I think he knows that right or wrong on the sort of merits that most New Yorkers do not care about punitive segregation in the jails and you know, believe that like people should be safe in jail. They should be safe in the street. You know, there's some people, of course, who want to know about the nuances and who care a lot. And they do those nuances do matter. and The policies do matter. But in terms of him understanding that, like regular New Yorkers, whether they're really wealthy, middle class, working class, whoever they are not concerned about some of these things that like we all are paying hyper you know, attention to. And that's where, you know, the sort of like Twitter doesn't really matter, you know, th- this, that, and the other doesn't matter that much as part of his, like, stay focused message, which he wasn't always focused, but, like, I'm I'm focused on what, like, people really care about in their daily lives. Clean, safe streets, good schools, you know, affordable housing, some of these things that he really got. Obviously, Catherine Garcia got that, too, and she got a whole bunch of votes. Um, you know, this is sort of his, like, political superpower, uh, which is very basic that Bill de Blasio didn't quite understand was that if you want to do a lot of these other things, you also have to really deliver city government services and and the basics. And so that's going to be fascinating to me is whether he really is focused on running city government. Well, he's made all these promises about a more efficient government, a more, uh, a government that serves people better, we can get far better results. Bill de Blasio did not really care about efficiency. He didn't re- didn't really care that much about effectiveness, I don't think. You know, he just wanted to, like, put a lot of good stuff that he thought good stuff in place and, like, hopefully help people's lives, you know, and help his own political standing. I think Eric Aaron's both learning from de Blasio and because this is how, you know, he, he, he I think, thinks is that he wants to run city government really well. And that'll be that'll be really fascinating to see. Um the other thing I think just on this question of learning from de Blasio is he has said this, but he vacillates between sort of being more nuanced and magnanimous and being very defensive, as some of you have gotten at. He said that he will admit when he makes mistakes. 
He has said that he will stand with controller Brad Lander and public advocate Jamani Williams and talk about what's you know gone wrong in government. That'll be easy to do for the first six months or so when they're not really his his mistakes. <laughs> um, but those I think will be really interesting. Whether he is willing to to acknowledge mess ups, screw ups, issues with his own policies, and so forth. All right, last um, last couple minutes here. Let's let's. Uh, hear from each of you on one more thing or two more things you're watching for from Eric Adams, whether it's appointments, types of policies, issues you want to see him tackle or are most interested in seeing him tackle. What are some of the things sort of on Eric Adams's plate that you're really watching closely or aspects of his administration that you're really um, looking at here? Uh, Harry, why don't you why don't you start off? really keyed in on the schools, which was a place where de Blasio, particularly after his first chancellor, Carmen Farina, left, sort of explicitly had a, a broad and ideological vision. He had a lot of backing from the New York Times in particular for that and didn't get very far. Um, Adams and his school's chancellor, David Banks, um, have come in rhetorically from a very interesting and different place, uh, notably one where, where, where David Banks, who had his own network of, uh, of, of charters that were really aimed at, at black boys, is like, we just want better not schools. Not charters, just sorry, sorry mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. interrupt, not charters, charter, charter-esque, mm-hmm. but not careful, charters. Careful, careful, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, the, the diversity is good, integration is good, but the fundamental thing that all parents want is, is in our fundamentally concerned with, I think this is exactly right, are just, are just better schools. Not not what the mix is within the school, but is my kid going to a decent one? Adams has been emphatic about keeping schools open and uh, against uh, pressure to this point, and I think may continue to build uh, uh, from from the, the, the teachers union uh, and from Jumani Williams, who we've mentioned, uh, is running for governor, of course, to uh, slow things down. Uh, so I, I, I think this, this is a place where the, the rhetorical shift is really interesting. And as with everything else, uh, we're going to find out soon uh, how that does or does not align with, uh, with, with the policies and, uh, and the results. Christina? Uh, mine is coming from a slightly different vantage point um, from a, like a black politics point of view. Um, and, you know, Harry and I had Adrian Adams, no relation, on our podcast last week, and she's the incoming speaker of city council and African-American woman, first African-American speaker of city council. And so it's a complicated dance that Adrian Adams, Eric Adams, and even Jumani Williams, let's just say Jumani Williams remains public advocate, as African-American leaders of New York City, um, because... On the one hand, strategically, sometimes you do need to call people out in public, uh, and then other times um, it needs to be back channels. And so uh, I'm curious to see the relationship between the two Adams, uh, Adrian and Eric, um, because she has a job to do, and she has to represent the council and represent 9 million New Yorkers, as does Eric Adams. But when they clash, it's it's somewhat difficult sometimes for like Black people to call out Black people in a way, because we we know that there's the shadow of sort of white press, white people, all these other things. And we saw it with Obama, but on a, on a municipal level, it's somewhat a little more complicated. Um, and so I'll be fascinated to see how the two of them and possibly the three of them negotiate their differences. And not to get into a whole new uh, theme here, but also Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also a lot of young council members of color who are you know to the left of Adrian Adams and Eric Adams uh, yes. and a whole and a whole lot more, um, Sally? A, a final thought from you, and and we'll we'll say goodbye. I guess the thing, um, the two issues I'm really curious how he handles are policing. You know, has the police department under Mike Bloomberg and Bill De Blasio was an independent agency that had virtually no mayoral oversight, and now the mayor is a former transit cop. So I'm curious to see how he handles that. And um, development, you know, de Blasio did a lot of development and, you know, a lot of housing development, but not a lot of economic development and really kept the housing development in low income areas until like the last 
month of his administration when he kind of got up the the courage to move through rezonings in wealthier areas. Eric Adams has said he wants to build throughout the city. And, you know, you run into a lot of small political fights along the way. I'm curious to see, like, how he handles that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that ties in with mine. Mine is is very much house, the various facets of the housing picture from development to NYCHA to homelessness. Uh, there's property tax reform. There's so much that I think this is the biggest sort of area where Bill de Blasio, you know, just sort of brought, um, you know, a weak approach to huge, huge crises that he he just didn't address at the scale needed. And I'll even add to that, you know, some of the issues around sort of transit and street use that, again, are just these huge crisis areas of, of mayoral management that just didn't get the the, the right attention. Um, all right. So much more we could discuss. But thank you all for the time. Dr. Christina Greer, Harry Siegel, Sally Goldenberg. Thank you. Thank Be you. well. Happy New Year. And uh, and thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.